Hello, this is Sean Mobley, the host of the Flight Deck podcast. Like many nonprofits across the country, the Museum of Flight has been severely impacted by the outbreak of COVID-19. We haven't traditionally used the podcast as a platform to make and ask for financial contributions to the museum, but in these unprecedented times, we would like to make an appeal to those who have a capacity to give right now. Maybe you give because you value what you've learned on the flight deck and want to keep hearing it in the near future. Maybe you give because you appreciate the programming the Museum of Flight's Education Department is developing and implementing as I record this to make sure kids across the country have access to learning opportunities while schools across the country are closed. Maybe you give because you have a great memory from a trip to the museum. Whatever reason, we want to hear it, and we want to thank you. You make this podcast possible. You make this museum possible now more than ever. To make a contribution, please visit museumofflight.org slash podcast and click the support the podcast button. Again, that's museumofflight.org slash podcast and click the yellow support the podcast button. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. This episode is part of a museum-wide initiative commemorating the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II this year. Today, we have another story from our docent corps, the story of docent Pete Metzlar. Pete was barely six years old when the Nazis occupied his homeland of Holland and began subjecting Dutch people of the Jewish faith to increasingly dehumanizing conditions. When most of his family and friends had been disappeared by the Nazis, young Pete and his mother found shelter in a farm on the Dutch countryside. Pete and I sat down to talk about the early days of the Holocaust he spent in the city of Amsterdam, his time later on the farm, and the extreme measures his mother undertook to protect her only child. I was in hiding with my mom on a small farm in the northern part of Holland, and it was uh, really coincidental that this little farm happened to be uh, underneath the flight path of the 17s when they were coming over from uh, from England. And uh, it was a, a really scary thing. There were like, uh, you know, six, seven, eight, nine hundred of them, and the drone uh, was just incredible, the sound. With that many aircraft, the windows rattled, the ground shook. It was very, very frightening. I remember my mom saying this was a good thing. I mean, tell a, you know, tell a eight-year-old that, a seven-year-old that. Uh, it was scary, especially uh, when they decided to uh, do the night runs. Uh, you could hear them coming. Everything started to rattle and roll. But then when you were outside, you looked up. You know, there wasn't any. Couldn't see anything except, you know, just a devastating sound. You know, that could last ten minutes before it flew over. Let's take a few steps back in the chronology before you were in hiding. Talk a little bit about 
growing up in Holland and, and the early days of the incarcerations? It all pretty much started uh, when I was uh, seven years old. The war had been on almost two years. Uh, the Nazis in, took over the government and everything else uh, in May of 1940. And the first two years, I can't honestly say that I was aware of much other than seeing soldiers I didn't know, I mean, seven years old. And it really became foremost when uh, my mom, uh, very upset, were saying that, you know, an aunt and an uncle were taken away, and then my grandparents and then my dad taken away. You know, what did that mean? Arrested, what did that mean? You know, how do you explain that to a seven-year-old? I mean... Uh, can't even tell an adult doesn't make make uh, make sense until it got so bad that so many people disappeared, friends and the whole family. And like in all countries, uh, you got good people, you got bad people, and uh, there were individuals that uh, just decided to do things for the people of the Jewish faith that they couldn't do for themselves. Like one of the things that happened, the, gov uh, the government was taken over. Food production was taken over by the Germans, and so all people had to, uh, they were issued stamps to buy food, but the Jewish people weren't given any. And so these so-called resistance underground, whatever you want to call it, uh, nothing organized, you know, one person in one block, two in another block. How you found them, how my mom found them, I have no idea. But they would, uh, you know, get stamps or get food, uh, falsify papers, and uh, really the most important part would be and how those people got hold of individuals or families that would be willing to shield a Jewish person or person. Uh, how they found those people, I have no idea, but that's how my mom uh, uh, found one of these individuals that would, uh, uh, who found a, a, a middle-aged or older couple uh, in the northeastern part of uh, Holland on a little farm that would be willing to uh, to hide us. This older couple, they became like, the man was, became like a surrogate father. They were a compassionate uh, Christian couple uh, that uh, just felt the wrong is being done. And not only uh, did they endanger their own lives, but if either mom or I were to get caught, that be the end of not only them, but their entire family. And it's always amazing to me, not only uh, this little bitty farm that they uh, worked from sunup to sunset, uh, the maybe acre of ground they had, if that much, raising veggies, and they shared it. They worked their fingers to the bone. But the mere fact, as I got older, recognizing not only that they were such decent human beings, but that they're were willing to endanger their and their entire family's life. And matter, and matter of fact, I've had many questions, uh, many times questions asked, would you ever do that? And to be honest, I'd almost have to say probably not, to endanger not only myself, but my whole family. I don't know that I would do that. I mean, there were extraordinary people that did that. Describe... What happened on the farms when the Germans would come in and search? They started, of course, in the cities. They had their trucks coming and ransacking people's homes. In some cases, there were notifications were given to have to report to a certain time. And then the Germans found out that uh, 
on the farmland that the Jews being hidden there, and now the trucks came there. Uh, they would just ransack these farms, you know, kicking over furniture, finding people hiding, sometimes uh, in a haystack. And in those days, they come in with uh, bayonets fixed on their rifles, stabbing into haystacks. There were times where a kid or an adult was hiding in there, and then they were put on a truck, and heaven knows where they went. Nobody, nobody ever knew. Klaus and his wife Rafina. Uh, on the little farm, uh, started to get very concerned with those raids, and rightfully so. And he had, uh, in one of the small rooms, uh, all of the floors were uh, uh, knotty pine, 12-inch white boards, and he had uh, taken a saw, and in the joint of two of those boards, he'd cut a six-foot-long section right in the joint, when you closed it up, you couldn't see anything. And when you opened it up, two feet down below was the dirt of this uh, old, old farm. And when I say old, uh, when Mom and I got there, it was probably 30, 40 years old already then. There was no uh, electricity, no toilet facilities. It was like an outhouse. You had to go outside. And uh, so now when we heard the trucks coming down the dirt road, we'd run into this little room, open up those boards, crawl underneath, crawl in there. Mom and I would be just body to body, could hardly fit in there, and either Klaus or Rafina would put the boards back on, throw a rug on it. You couldn't couldn't tell anything. And there were numerous times where we were in there, and they'd be ransacking the soldier, German soldiers, and they would uh, be walking foot and a half over my head. Uh, as I always say, all it would have taken is one cough, one sneeze, one hiccup, and it would have been all over. And even that got to be too dangerous. One day at dusk, a class asked me to get a wheelbarrow and some shovels. And I always uh, emphasize the word dusk, you know, when it starts to get dark. Uh, because in the almost two and a half years we were there, there wasn't a single time that my mom or I could come outside during daylight hours ever. You know, there were other farms in the area. People started to know each other, and like every country. Uh, you would have enemy sympathizers, uh, you know, traitors, whatever you want to call it. And if during daylight hours, if mom and I were to ever come out, and if we were to be seen, somebody would say, hey, where'd they come from? Well, the reality is we became a non-entity. We didn't exist, because the minute that you think you did, you're done. You're gone. Uh, you don't know where it would come from, and, uh, you know, we didn't have a soul, we didn't have a body, we just could never, ever come out, except at dusk, uh, when it was dark, and, you know, less likely of this to happening. Well, about 150 feet or so from the farm uh, was a small forest, you can't even call it a forest, it's, you know, half acre of clump trees, and so class asked me to get a wheelbarrow and a shovel, and we went into this little area and started digging. Every time we had a wheelbarrow full of dirt, he'd tell me to roll it out and empty it one hand at a time. Don't dump it. If they ever come in here, don't let it be seen that there was any activity there. And so after about a day and a half, we ended up with a three-by-three-by-three, six-foot-deep uh, hole in the, in the side of this hill. Uh, Klaus had cut down some small trees, randomly put it over this hole like a roof, and then took the branches and interwove them in the entrance. So you'd have to, to get in kind of separated and 
when we heard the trucks coming, uh, Mom and I would run out the back and we'd crawl into this hole again. It was just big enough for the two of us in there. And I couldn't see out because of the twigs in the front because if you stood outside, it just blend in with nature with the rest of it. And I remember there were always uh, there were always two things that scared me. Uh, I remember it quite well is that every time we went in there, uh, dirt came trickling down. Uh, I was always afraid I was you know going to cave in. But I became aware as by this time I'm what eight and a half years old that somebody wants to kill me. I don't know why and what happened to dad and the rest of the family. What are we doing crawling into this hole? And the thing that scared me more than anything else, other than this dirt trickling down, is the fact that it was just a 100 or so feet from the farm. I could hear them ransacking the farm, kicking over furniture, hollering, but I couldn't see out. And the thing that mostly, again, repeating myself, scared me is that this time they're going to come and get me. What did I do? What's what's wrong? Well, as I always tell people, I'm standing here, and the reality is they never did come into this uh, little forest. At some point, the farm got too dangerous. Yeah, it it the raids became more and more frequent. There was a uh, a meeting that Hitler and his henchmen called in the city of Wannsee, a city south of Berlin referred to in the books as the Wannsee Conference where you got together with his henchmen. And it was in an hour and 20 minutes of this meeting that they came up with what the history books refer to as the final solution, uh, how to eradicate every person of the Jewish faith from the face of uh, Europe. Well, those, those raids became just impossible, and my mom in her wisdom, decided after almost two and a half years that one of these days we're going to get caught. Uh, Not only would that be the end of us, but uh, those wonderful people, Klaus and Rafina and their family. So again, here, even on the farm, how my mom got hold of one of those so-called underground people, I have no idea. But they came up with uh, uh, a couple of women in the city of of, uh, The Hague, that was, I don't know what the distance was, but I, again, it's, it's a blank. I don't remember how we got from one to the other. But the reality was that when we got there, these women that would give us shelter, they had a little bedroom and a three, four-story walk-up apartment. But it was so different there. I noticed that right right away, that the compassion that was shown by Klaus and Rufina and the, the love and kindness and decency uh, those women didn't have that. Anytime there was any dirty work to be done, they'd ask my mom to do it, whether it was cleaning the floors or the bathroom. Uh, they wouldn't share their food stamps with us or food. Matter of fact, I remember that there were several times that mom disappeared for an hour or so at night, and she'd come back with a loaf of bread. Don't ask. I don't know. I don't know where she got it. They would hardly talk to us. <laughs> But we had to be thankful. I mean, after all, they did give us shelter. The bad part came about. Uh, we were there for approximately eight months. After this uh, once conference in the city, the trucks, it was just a daily thing, 24 hours a day. And this is the question that I asked my mom more than anything else. And she never gave me an answer. Like I say, whether she forgot or didn't want to remember, 
But she found out these women were going to turn us in. They got afraid because of all of the uh, raids that we'd get caught and that would be the end of them. So we had to get out of there. And again, she found one of these underground people uh, who ended up finding a one-room apartment back in Amsterdam where we started. The two cities are only, I, I would guess, maybe 40, 50 miles apart. And in those days, there was only one highway, but it was taken over by the Germans. Uh, no civilians allowed of any type. So I don't know how it was going to come about, but I woke up one night, and Mom was sitting at a little table with what looked like a bunch of bed sheets, sewing. And uh, after I woke up, a couple of hours later, she made this contraption, a skirt and a top with buttons and pockets. She made and a little hat. She made like a sold by hand a nurse's uniform. I said, what are you doing? She says, get dressed. I don't know, it was midnight, one in the morning, whatever. And she bundled, it was winter. Uh, she bundled me up and bundled herself up. And she wrapped this contraption that she sewed by hand around herself and we tippy-toed out of the apartment. Uh, we had no belongings to speak of, and we're trudging through the snow, looking around every corner because there were curfews, and you know nobody was supposed to be out. And I asked her, I said, where are we going? And all she said, be quiet, just follow me. And by the time daylight came about, all of a sudden, I'm, by this time I'm 10 years old, and I realized where we're we going, and I said, uh, we're not going to this highway, are we? She says, we got to go there. We got to get to Amsterdam. I said, we can't do that. It's all for the German military. Those are the guys who want to kill us. She said, just follow me. Be quiet. And as daylight came about and we got to the highway, there were flatbed trucks and tanks and artillery and soldiers marching, scared to you know what out of me. I mean, mom is my only security. I'm hanging on to her for dear life. Then she does something uh, where I know the doo-doo is going to hit the fan, and she turns sideways and starts to hitchhike. I said, what are you doing? She says, don't talk. And after, I don't know, five, ten minutes, a flatbed truck stopped, and an SS officer gets out and starts to read my mother the riot act. What are you doing here with a child? No civilians allowed, blah, blah, blah. I don't know why the guy even gave her a chance to explain, and she spoke fluent German because prior to marrying my dad in Holland, she was born in Vienna, so she spoke fluent German. And uh, he gave her a chance to explain, and her explanation was that when the British came over to try to wipe out the V-2 rocket site that the Germans fired from the coast uh, over to England, they hit the B-17 bases, and... Uh, Antwerp and Rotterdam, two of uh, Europe's largest uh, seaport bases. Uh, I said when the British came to try and knock it out, one of the British bombs went astray. That was her story. And she pointed at me and she said it hit the building, a bomb hit the building. The kid here pointing at me was living and it killed his father and his mother. And as you can see, I'm a nurse working for the International Red Cross and I'm taking him to an uh, orphanage in Amsterdam. 
An unbelievable story how she came up with that. Well, he grabbed her by the arm. I'm hanging on to her for dear life. And we get to that flatbed truck, and now he separates me from her. I thought it was all over by this time. And he takes her and guides her over to the cab of the truck. And he helps her inside of the cab. Uh, She sits next to the German driver, and I'm standing by myself. And he comes back to me, and I thought, this is it. And he picks me up, and he puts me in the back of the truck in the snow. I'm sitting in the snow. He goes back in the cab. My mom is sitting between the two SS officers. And thank you very much. They took us to Amsterdam. (laughs) It's always a part of the story. Everybody comments on me. How did she ever come up? How did she come up with with a story like that? I mean, my gosh. And here the guys that want to kill us. They took us where where we wanted to go. (laughs) <laughs> really remarkable. I can't get over it. That's to me. It's it's the love of a mother. The I mean, I had no siblings. I was the only one. For all she knew, the only one that was alive. And still, how do you come up with this? <laughs> but she did. After the war, did you find out what happened to the rest of your family? Yep, yeah. I'd been in the United States uh, for fifty-five, sixty years. Uh, you know, I was in the U.S. Army here, and it was a normal life. I'd never been never been back to Europe. I have three sons, and my middle son, who lived here in Washington, he and his wife, uh, because of the work, his job was transferred to Belgium, to Brussels, and it was in 1992 that he uh, that he called up and said, hey, why don't you guys come out for the holidays? And I was really excited about that because... I'd never been back to Europe and still spoke the language just a little bit. I became a citizen in 1957. My mom, this is another, I get a kick out of this. Uh, I have to say my mom, uh, the reason I don't speak better Dutch, I can still make do, but uh, every time that I would uh, speak to my mom in Dutch, she would answer me in English. I mean, she was so proud and so happy to be here. Uh, in America, and the rules were different in those days. When she came a citizen in 1954, uh, the way the rules were, if I had been at a certain age, which I wasn't, I was over that, had I been younger, I would have been a citizen automatically on her papers, but I had to wait until I was whatever the age was in, in 1957. Uh, so I had to take my own test and all of that. So tongue-in-cheek... Uh, every time we'd get into some kind of an argument, uh, she'd call me a dirty foreigner. <laughs> she she was a citizen and I wasn't. <laughs> so so anyway, we went back to uh, back to Rome. And the thing that always stood out in my whole mind for all these years, whatever happened to that little farm and those wonderful people, Klaus and Rafina, the sickening part was. I had no idea where, what village it was, where this place was that we were in hiding. Uh, my mom was quite ill. Uh, she didn't remember. And then she came up with a name, which I recognized was the dirt road the farm was on. <laughs> I said, great. I said, where? What am I going to do? Go to a foreign country and ask them for a dirt road? And uh, anyway, I went to the library and looked up all these names. Nothing jumped out of me. There was one name that... Had a little familiarity, Makinha. I asked my mom, were we? And no, she didn't know. That's all we had to go on. 
And so uh, we flew over uh, to Belgium, spent a week there, and then we drove to Amsterdam. It's only about a two-and-a-half-hour drive. And uh, it was a big kick. I could still read the advertising signs. And we became the tourists, took the canal cruise and visited the Rijksmuseum, the Van Gogh Museum, and, of course, went through the Anne Frank house. And then we had another hour-and-a-half drive, this thing that hardly made anything to me. Uh, to this Mackenkhan, we drive into this village, and I told my son he was driving, pull over to this bank. I said, I'm going to make a fool of myself. I'm in a foreign country, and I don't know where the hell I am. <laughs> and we go into the bank. The lady says, can I help you? And I said, you know, this is embarrassing. We're from the United States. Have you ever heard? And I gave her the name, and I was ready to tuck my tail between my legs and walk out. And she said, sir, she says, I know that place. She says, that's about five minutes from here. I said, oh, my God, you're kidding me. We were, that was very emotional. We were, my daughter-in-law, my son, and my wife and I were hugging and crying, you know, having found a place that we didn't even know where we were, in my case, stepping back into my history of almost 60 years. Uh, <clears throat> and we're making such a racket. The manager came out, <laughs> probably thought it was a holdup or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I told him a little bit of the story, and he got a very pensive, I remember, very pensive. This is, like I say, in uh, December 92. It came, the question came. I said, have you ever heard of the Klaus and Rafina Post family? And he said, of course I have. I said, no. I said, how did you know them? He said, they used to bank here. I said, oh, my God. And I said, what happened? My obvious question. And then he said, uh, they both passed away about seven years ago. And I have a hard time with this to this day. You know, why didn't I get back sooner? You know, give him a hug. Thanks for saving my life. And, uh, you know, regret is a horrible thing to live with. Uh, anyway, he said that farm is still there. I don't know if the people are there, but, you know, I'm sure it looks a little different from what it did 60 years ago. But. If you know if they're home, I'm sure they'll let you in. So I couldn't wait, and we go up this dirt road, and lo and behold, I could re I recognized the farm. I mean, new paint, new roof, more barns, more <laughs> foliage after six. Unfortunately, nobody was home. I was just dying to get inside to see if those floorboards were still there <laughs> that Mom and I hid underneath there. But anyway, we went around. We spent the whole day there, and this was in December. And then I said, I want to go into that little forest just to see if there was any remnant dirt in the soft in the ground where I helped build this cave that Mom and I hid in. And we go in there, and for whatever reason, I go one way, my family went another way, and every time there was a soft spot, I'd step on it, see if this could have been it. And it wasn't five minutes later that maybe 60, 70 feet away, my son called out and said, Dad, I found it. And I go over there, and there's that cave like the day I left it 60 years ago. It didn't have the twigs in the front anymore, but wow, there it was. It was a very moving, moving experience, to say the least. When you think of your mom and all this story, what, what comes to your mind? Well, it, she was a very unusual person. Uh, the strange thing was, after I, and by the way, after... Uh, on that particular visit, uh, something I wanted to do. Everybody called me nuts to want to do this, and that I also, I always wanted to visit the site of a 
Nazi concentration camp, which we did. We, my son made some arrangements, and we flew on Lot Airlines, the national Polish airline, over to Krakow. And a beautiful medieval city, but, you know, 30 minutes, 20 minutes outside of Krakow was the biggest piece of hell that man ever created for man, uh, Auschwitz, Birkenau. You know, 15 square miles at any given time held 230,000 so prisoners. So, so that is where so many of the people uh, people went to. Uh, after I experienced all this, I just couldn't wait to get back home. Uh, Mom was in a in a, a nursing facility. She was quite ill, and I couldn't wait to sit next to her and hold her hand and share a tear or two and go over what I experienced, the amazing thing to me at the time was she didn't want to hear about it. Didn't want to hear about it. And I could understand it. I mean, she put it behind her. She didn't want to. It was too painful. Uh, nobody in my family came back. Mom and I uh, were, the only, were the only survivors. And uh, so it was always amazing, the experience we had. And she she, I don't know, she didn't turn into a over, overly nice person after the war. She was self-centered, maybe because she was deprived emotionally and everything else of so many years. Uh, she ended up kind of superficial. But, you know, I, I had the um, utmost admiration for her, you know, for a woman by herself, difficult enough, but under those circumstances, uh, your, your life and your child, your only child, uh, threatened 24-7 uh, by death, you know, to withstand what she did and to function and, and do what she did. I mean, uh, I was always in awe about that. How did you end up at the Museum of Flight? I was always interested in aviation, not to any great extent, because my first exposure was with the 17s coming over, scaring the you-know-what out of me. And after the war, I remember riding to Boeing. And at that time, I don't know if they still do or not, they used to send photographs of various aircrafts, like the like people that rode to Hollywood to get pictures of movie stars, and they <laughs> used to collect those. And always, always interested. Never took flying lessons, never. I mean, I just had some fascination. And five years or six years ago, I guess it is now, uh, my wife was at the Y and met somebody whose husband was a docent here. And how the subject came up, I don't know. And she said, you know, to call the museum and, uh, you know, find out that they have a training course or something like that. And I did, and I ended up speaking with Carol uh, Thompson at the time. And they had just finished a training course, and they have a couple a year, wonderful course, nine or 11 weeks on Saturdays. But as it turned out, at the time, the B-17 was parked in the front by the entrance, and they were giving tours through it. And I forget how the conversation came up, but if you want to take a little two-day course or something to that effect about the B-17. We need somebody to give tours for the B-17. So the thing that scared the you-know-what out of me, I ended up giving tours through it. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. This 
story always hits home for me. My grandfather, Lucien, like Pete, is a Holocaust survivor. And while he and Pete had very different stories, like Pete, my grandfather and his immediate family are the only relatives that survived the genocide. And I would be lying if I said I didn't reflect with some regularity on the fact that I would not be here today recording this if any one of a million different situations had gone even slightly differently. You know, if someone had been home late or home early or taken a left instead of a right. When I hear the helplessness in the voice, it was just not right. This story just always makes me stop. And you can hear Pete's story in person here at the museum. He presents his story regularly on Friday afternoons as part of our storytelling program. And he also goes out into the community. He volunteers not just here at the museum, but also at the Holocaust Center for Humanity here in Seattle, where he is part of the Speakers Bureau, which goes out to schools and libraries and community groups. And you can find a link to the storytelling schedule here at the Museum of Flight in our show notes, along with a link to the Holocaust Center for Humanity, if you wanted to bring Pete or another Holocaust survivor to your group in the Pacific Northwest. You can learn more about the museum's commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, including the grand reopening of our newly refreshed World War II exhibit and an amazing lineup of public programs on our website, museumofflight.org. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the podcasts on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. And share it out with your friends. We really appreciate you spreading the word. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>